0: Hello and welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Evan Burnick executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and visiting professor of law at Georgetown. We will discuss his new article, Constitutional Hedging. So welcome back to the show, Evan.
1: Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. This is a really interesting and thought-provoking article about how judges might think about doing constitutional decision-making. But by way of kind of situating listeners in, in your argument and what you're proposing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by hedging.
1: So I think the best way to understand what I'm up to in this article is by thinking about what normative constitutional theory, theories about what judges ought to do with the Constitution ordinarily proceeds. You articulate an interpretive methodology that you think judges should follow in constitutional cases, say common law constitutionalism or originalism. You then explain why judges should follow that theory rather than other theories, uh, minimalism, common good constitutionalism, whatever. And then you consider and you respond to objections to the theory that you've articulated this is basically the the my favorite theory approach is what I call it. You decide what methodology you think is best overall, and then you tell judges to go forth and apply that theory consistently. You're an originalist; you follow original meaning. Now, my article seeks to normalize or put on the table an alternative to the my favorite theory approach, in constitutional hedging, and hedging rests on the promise or the premise rather that. There are a number of different constitutional theories that a given judge might consider plausible, and it proposes that instead of picking and sticking with a favorite theory, a judge might routinely take into account their confidence in the theories that they consider plausible and the strength of support for various possible decisions under them when making decisions. They wouldn't just do their best to do what they think originalism or common law constitutionalism says. So, I mean, let's get concrete. Suppose my favorite theory is originalism. But I also think that common law constitutionalism and Dworkinism are plausible. Suppose the question at hand is the constitutionality of solitary confinement. And suppose that common law constitutionalism and Dworkinism support holding solitary confinement unconstitutional, but originalism says uphold it. If I'm hedging, I'm not necessarily going to uphold solitary confinement. It matters how much confidence I have in the various theories, including my favorite theory, originalism, and how strongly they support or oppose solitary confinement. So you don't just go with your favorite theory.
0: Well, what might make a judge feel like a particular theory was more or less plausible in any particular circumstance? In other words, you know, if a judge would normally be committed to one constitutional theory, what might cause them to think that in particular circumstances, other theories might also be potentially viable alternatives? Is it like about what they expect the outcome to be? Or is it about something about the nature of the question being presented to them?
1: Uh, It really depends on the reasons that you have a favorite constitutional theory if you have one, and the uh, considerations that that constitutional theory requires you to take into account. Um, But even like on a very formalistic theory of constitutional interpretation, that's your favorite. So if you're an originalist, um, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, early in his career, before he later retracted this statement, described himself as a faint-hearted originalist because he couldn't imagine himself upholding, whipping, or flogging as a punishment, um, even if the original meaning of the Eighth Amendment um, did not forbid it. He didn't really articulate why that was, but one gets the sense that he felt the pull of a powerful moral conviction that that kind of punishment really was cruel and really was odious and couldn't be defended on the basis of some normative considerations that exerted a pull on his judgments. So it does depend on the circumstances, but I think that um, even outside of that case, where you've got a flat conflict between your moral intuitions and your favorite theory, you might be less confident than Justice Scalia that your theory of law or your theory of the Constitution really does capture the reality of the law. You might think that there are arguments to be said for originalisms, kind of monistic accounts of what the law is. It consists in original meaning and nothing else. And you might think that there's something to be said for common law constitutionalism, which places a great deal of weight on precedent, and reliance to interests. Um, So there's room both for uh, uncertainty that's born of you knowing exactly what your favorite theory of law requires and feeling that that it might be morally odious if you follow that, or you may not just be sure what the law exactly is and you might feel pulled in a couple of different uh, directions by different accounts of what the law is. Well, so as a practical
0: matter, right, if a judge is sitting down – to think about a particular problem. And they know that there are several different potential constitutional theories on the table, each one of which is going to lead them to a particular outcome, if it looks like the right theory to apply. It seems like also those theories are going to have – kind of theoretical opinions or they're going to they're kind of assess alternative outcomes in particular ways as well like a theory might have the outcome that that theory would support and alternative theory alternative outcomes would look better or worse under that particular theory like As a practical matter, how does a judge go about sort of weighing the relative plausibility and usefulness or appropriateness of different theories in relation to a particular problem and in relation to
1: each other? So what I propose that judges do in this this circumstance um, is – uh, analogous to what is widely regarded as perhaps the least problematic means of aggregating preferences in the context of political decision-making. Um, this method is known as the board accounts, and it's kind of a round-robin, rank-choice voting tournaments um, between different political candidates. Um, who wins a tournament is a function of how many competitors a uh, candidate beats in head-to-head matchups and by how much, um, with how much being determined by voters' preferences. What I basically treat do is treat competing constitutional theories as individual voters who can express, that can express, the strength of their preferences with respect to various constitutional options. And which option is going to carry the day is going to turn upon both the strength of the theories or the strength of judges' confidence in the respective theories and um, the success of various options under those various theories. Um, And what's neat about the board accounts is that you don't actually need to deal with the problem of figuring out whether something or how to compare something being really good under originalism with something being really bad under some form of non-originalism. You don't have to assign precise numerical rankings. Uh, You can just say, well, originalism favors X over Y over Z. Living constitutionalism favors Z over Y over X. And that's all that you need. You don't need to be more precise than that and it's very computationally undemanding. Another approach that you could take is something that's closer to you know, the Bayesian approach that's used to make decisions under empirical uncertainty. Uh, the problem with the Bayesian approach, from my point of view, is that it really does require um, you know, cardinality you, to be able to assign precise numbers to particular outcomes. And I think that's going to be very difficult in the context of constitutional theory. Uh, Constitutional theories don't really lend themselves to like numerical rankings in particularly robust ways.
0: So I'm no political scientist, but from what little I know, as I understand it, a lot of people think rank voting is great, but that it's also potentially vulnerable to circumstances where it can produce outcomes where no one's top choice ends up winning. Do you see that as a potential problem for the framework that you're proposing? Or are there features of kind of choosing among constitutional theories that are less vulnerable to that problem than a kind of traditional, you know, political voting
2: would be?
1: Right. So in the formal literature, without getting too technical, I think there is general convergence upon the idea that the board accounts is least susceptible to those kind of problems among various aggregation methods. It does have a problem with tactical voting, with um, basically voters expressing preferences in ways that don't actually reflect their true preferences. But you don't really have to worry about that in the context of constitutional theories because they can't have agency and they can't lie about their preferences. Um, What recommends the board account in this setting is more or less what recommends it in the political uh, set, that it's capable of capturing both the breadth and the strength of political preferences. Um, It doesn't get dominated by wacky theories that are very implausible, but strongly recommend particular results. And uh, it looks to whether a option um, enjoys a broad degree of success across voting theories in the same way that um, in the political setting, the board account looks for a broad degree of support among voters.
0: Well, so earlier you talked about, for example, problems relating to solitary – questions relating to solitary confinement. If we imagine a judge sitting down asking the question sort of how should I think about constitutional claims in relation to the question of the Eighth Amendment and, and solitary confinement, right? I've got these potential constitutional theories out there I could use as tools for figuring out what the right answer Should be. I'm not sure which one to go with or sort of how to choose among them. What are you offering? You know, what is this theory of hedging? What is this model you're proposing say to judges? How does it help them kind of make sense of this problem and reach an answer that they'll feel comfortable is the right answer? So,
1: the danger that you run into if you've got a favorite theory approach and your favorite theory is a theory that you regard as more plausible than the alternatives, but not necessarily more likely to be right than wrong, is that you run the risk of making a very bad decision that looks, that can be seen as bad um, if you break down your theories. So like you're 30% confident in originalism, um, but every other theory that you consider is plausible points to y and originalism points to x. So you've got something like a 70% chance of being wrong if you go with your favorite theory. What the framework that I'm bringing to bear gives you is a way of basically optimizing your chances of being right and avoiding uh very counterintuitive results that will uh you know, as measured by your own lights. Um, get you farther away from what you think that the constitution truly requires or will produce the best conference consequences or whatever. Um, there may be a sense in which, uh, you know, and this has been suggested to me, judges do this already. They consider um, how a particular outcome would be viewed under a number of different theories, at which point my framework uh, simplifies and formalizes a, an approach that um, enables them to do what they're already doing in a more transparent and principled way.
0: See, I wonder about that, because it, it, that, that makes a lot of sense to me that it's sort of like a tool for thinking more systematically about how to choose between different constitutional theories. As a practical matter, do you think judges should be transparent, about how they're using this tool that you're proposing or are there reasons to be concerned about sort of pulling aside the curtain as it were
1: so <laughs> this is something that I don't know the answer to and I'm not sure how I would uh, really gauge the answer to without you know running the kind of controlled experiment that eludes constitutional theory more generally which is you know systematically testing how, Publ- how the public responds to different kinds of uh, constitutional rhetoric um i you know there's uh there's a sense in which it seems wildly counterintuitive that a judge would recite their various their credences in various theories and you know uh, do what I'm suggesting in the sense of putting a formal mathematical equation into an opinion and explaining how they're doing what they're doing um, and that the you know the public or legal elites who exert an influence on how judges are regarded um, wouldn't uh, wouldn't respond well to that but I'm not sure that we really know one way or the other and you also have to run into the you know, the, the, the contrary problem of having judges essentially doing kind of seat of their pants, um, uh, you know, intuitive uh, decision making um, at the same time that they're articulating what they're doing in very formal structured terms. Um, the advantage of the approach that I'm putting forward is that you could articulate what you're doing in a very systematic way, and that would actually reflect the reality of your decision-making process rather than um, serve as a post-hoc rationalization for something that's much more intuitive.
0: I got to say, I was struck that your proposal seemed like something that was very likely to work both descriptively and practically uh, in practice. But I kind of wonder how well it works in theory right? In other words, we've got a bunch of big picture kind of normative theories of constitutional decision making out there. Is the kind of approach you're talking about consistent with those kind of high level theories of what judges ought to be doing when they're making constitutional decisions?
1: Uh, It's definitely a challenge to conventional theories of what judges ought to be doing when they're making decisions. Um, The my favorite theory approach is the dominance approach um the way that i try to establish the plausibility of this as an alternative is by saying that look we all have this intuition that judges should do their best to get things right uh with what things right um are is a function of what they determine the think is the best theory of what the law is is um it's not necessarily the case that What you're doing when you're hedging is departing from that vision, quite the contrary, Um, precisely because uh, a favorite theory approach can, in a number of circumstances, lead to results that are quite likely to be wrong. The hedging approach actually is consistent with the idea that judges should do their best. It just acknowledges that judges doing their best might want to be a little bit more epistemically humble uh, with respect to the true meaning of the Constitution or what will produce the best consequences or increase social welfare or whatever. Um, I mean, looking back uh, across the, the span of constitutional history, I think we can confidently say that a lot of serious and you know, morally terrible mistakes have been made as a consequence of bad constitutional theory and decision making. And it's quite possible that future generations will look back at us and say, you know, originalism, what the hell is this? Why, how did people think that this was a good idea to decide constitutional cases? Um, and the advantage of my approach is that it accommodates uh, the difficulty that uh, really is, is, is pervasive in constitutional decision making, just how hard this subject matter is and allows judges to learn from their experience, to update their beliefs, update their confidence intervals, and consistently make progressively better cracks at getting things right as they see it.
0: So what about in relation to sort of normative theories of, of judging? I mean, do you think the kind of um, uh, almost like open-mindedness when it comes to which theory to use that you're suggesting, uh, would be appropriate under a kind of hedging model is more or less consistent with the various normative theories of judging that are out there, or is it sort of orthogonal to them in some way? And like, it just sort of depends on the circumstances.
1: Well, so I think the closest that you can find by way of family resemblance to the, uh, to the hedging approach is uh, Richard Fallon's reflective equilibrium approach and the reflective equilibrium approach, which is modeled on Rawls's approach to um, determining uh, what it is morally best to do or the correct moral principles to apply, is that you you oscillate between your theoretical judgments, your principle uh, the principles that you deem desirable in a given setting and the concrete results. Um, that are associated with particular cases so if you're an originalist you would say well I believe in originalism as a theoretical matter but originalism leads to terrible results in this case I should pivot between these things I should adjust until I am satisfied with myself that my constitutional theory respects both my first order theoretical convictions and my second order concrete judgments about particular cases Um, My approach resembles that in the following sense. Um, It's always available to a judge to update their confidence levels in the theories that they consider plausible. If they're 60% originalist, they can go to 50% originalist. If they're 40% common law constitutionalist, they could go to 20. Um, It all depends upon uh, the judge, their, you know, Utility functions, or you know, what um, goes into their decision making about, or their what goes in, you know, the the inputs that go into their normative decision making, Um, and what they're learning is a consequence of doing and observing the world and participating in the activity of making law. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's updatable in a sense that's similar to Fallon's. The the real difference between my approach and, so far as I know, any other approach that has been put forward seriously although there's a philosopher ted lockhart who suggested a similar idea and there's now uh courtney cox over at fordham who uh roughly simultaneously to me although without my knowledge um was working on a very similar pro hedging project um the difference the difference really is that uh with Fallon's approach, you're still toggling between your principles and your considered judgments, but and you're updating, but there's always some approach that you are confident enough in to apply in any given case, even if you subsequently update it and decide to do something differently in the subsequent case. With my approach, there are a number of different theories on the table, and whether you're going to follow any particular theory turns upon the Um, how those theories hit the ground with respect to the facts of a particular case, what your confidence levels are. And that's basically, that's basically how it breaks down. Well, the, the, the,
0: the approach you're describing sounds a little bit like sort of splitting the baby between kind of a deontological and a consequentialist approach in some ways for people who are really committed to one or the other of those and are not comfortable with sort of going back and forth between the two as circumstances might suggest um should those people be troubled at all by what you're proposing or is the kind of hedging of theories like of of theories of interpretation that you're proposing consistent with a kind of strong commitment to one particular normative theory
1: the only thing that it's not consistent with is a credence of one or a 100% confidence in any particular theory. So in the same way that you wouldn't hedge between consequentialism and deontologism if you were a 100% convinced that there, is, you know, there are no circumstances under which you would depart from consequentialism. This theory doesn't have much to offer you if you're 100% confident in common law constitutionalism and nothing can shake your judgments. The bet that I'm making is that that kind of view really is unusual. Um, if somebody like Scalia, who is was as for, uh, forceful in articulating his strong preference for originalism as anybody perhaps, you know, in the annals of um, judicial decision-making has about been about um, a particular theory. If even he, in certain circumstances, acknowledges that he might be so faint-hearted as not to follow it, I think it's a reasonable assumption that there are a lot of judges who feel torn in various respects between various alternatives, even though, all things considered, they would identify as an X or a Y or a Z. And this framework is for them. <laughs> It says that you don't need to be or think of yourself as being unprincipled if you toggle between your favorite theory and other theories that you deem plausible uh, in circumstances where the gravity of the stakes under um, the respective theories is is very different. Um, and I would say that you know the uh, the idea that you, a lot of what I'm doing here is inspired by moral philosophical literature on decision making under normative uncertainty. And I think that it would be equally reasonable to say to somebody um, who is very confident in originalism, but thinks that originalism doesn't care between X, Y, and Z, but um, regards other theories that I think are plausible as strongly preferring Y, going with Y strikes me as just as reasonable if you were torn between, you know, Kantian deontology and, um, uh, million consequentialism, saying that if consequentialism doesn't have anything to say about a question, um, but deontology says, no, really, you don't lie in these circumstances. You don't lie in these circumstances. Um, if there's a lot at stake under a theory that you deem plausible, and there's nothing at stake under the theory that you perhaps think is most plausible, you should go with the theory that is plausible and which there are higher stakes under
0: well, so just briefly, you you also discuss kind of erataic normative or or virtue ethics inspired normative theory of 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 law. Do you think that the hedging you're describing is consistent with virtuous action?
1: Absolutely. Um, even if you are a virtue ethicist who believes strongly that um, it is of the nature of an excellent or a virtuous judge to try to get the law rights. Um, you can acknowledge that there are circumstances in which the law is going to simply run at and not provide you with a determinate answer. And you're going to have to make a decision in some way. And you might be uncertain what you ought to do in those circumstances. And I don't think that there's anything inconsistent with an erratic theory of judging that says under those circumstances, you cannot hedge because you know, by stipulation, we're in a position where the best theory of what the law is, is just not going to tell you what to do in those circumstances. And you need to have recourse to a kind of second order normative theory. And you might be uncertain as to which normative theory you ought to follow in those circumstances. Um, the other thing is that even if you, you know, even if you do believe that, um, following the law is of, you know, um, is central to what it means to be a virtuous judge. It's not necessarily the only virtue. And there are prominent uh, virtue, ethical, constitutional theorists who will say, well, you know, there may be some circumstances in which an outcome would be sufficiently morally terrible that you should not follow the law. As soon as you're engaged in calculations like that, you're in the territory of constitutional hedging.
0: So Evan, I mean, one question I had reading the paper, which you discussed briefly, and I'd love to hear more about is sort of what do I do if I am a legal realist, right? And I think mm-hmm. that what judges are really doing is deciding what they think the outcome should be, and then using constitutional theories or whatever kind of legal theory to kind of explain how they got there. Explain how they got there, as it were putting putting in the scare quotes, right? Um, does your does your theory have anything a to offer them, or maybe b anything to maybe say? To people who think about the process of judging that way, should they find it interesting and helpful, maybe even despite it not necessarily telling them what they should do? Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess I should start by saying how I understand what the legal realist taught us, and that itself is disputed. And, um It may be that what I'm about to say is not going to satisfy a thoroughgoing legal realist under some description. However, what I think that the legal legal realists taught us is that too often the doctrine that courts invoke is not what's really driving their decisions. It was central to legal legal realism to reform the law, to make the actual doctrines cited by the courts correspond to the actual experiences and values upon which judges rely. It did not say that judges behaved randomly. It held that they behaved how they behaved, conformed more closely with judges' moral intuitions and their knowledge of economic and social conditions than any formal doctrine. And from my standpoint, moral intuitions seem like the stuff of moral uncertainty. So even if you think that what judges are doing in hard cases is ideology all the way down, they may be uncertain about what ideology ought to guide their decision making. Uh, and their ideology might be shaped by alternatives, uh, alternative approaches to constitutional adjudication which with, with which they have not been previously confronted, such as constitutional hedging. So in the same way that like, if determinism is true, it might still be a good idea to tell people it's wrong to murder because everything they do is a function of previously existing causes – And one of the things that contributes to the web of decisions or web of causes that leads to the decision is, you know, what kind of ideas they're exposed to. Um, It may be a good idea to, you know, confronted with a judge whose decision is going to be determined by a chain of causes um, that precedes him or precedes the moment of decision um, to expose him to a particular idea that he would not otherwise be exposed to. Um, might still be a valuable thing and still exert an influence, even if at the point of decision um, she couldn 't have done otherwise
0: well, so Evan, in closing, uh, this project seems like the first step in a in a bigger project, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you see it going in the future
1: so there are a lot of unanswered questions that I have about how to really get a sense of whether this is not only plausible but like something that is probable enough to actually recommend that a judge do. Uh, And that's going to involve confronting some of the questions that really have um, caused some trouble for moral philosophers who have recommended decision-making under moral uncertainty, such as, okay, um, you want to hedge under uncertainty. You might be uncertain about whether hedging is something that you should do. Uh, Should you hedge against the possibility that hedging Uh, is the right approach to take to constitutional decision-making. Okay, well, should you hedge against the possibility of hedging against the possibility of hedging? You've got to cut it off at some point. How do you cut that off in an arbitrary way? That's a question that I would need to explore. The other question that I do think is really important goes to this question of public legitimacy. Um, There's robust debates in the empirical literature about just how much judges care about how people think. Um, but I think that there still is a general sense that, um, is so far whether it's a matter of democratic theory or as a matter of consequentialist considerations, you don't want judges to do things that are too far out of step from what people will regard as legitimate decision making. It's important to under uh, to figure out whether they would, how they would respond to a framework that acknowledged uncertainty about the best approach to take to the law in the way that I've suggested. It's definitely not something that people are used to. We won't know until we find some way of testing this. Um, I operate under the assumption that whatever response there's going to be is not going to be sufficiently bad to undermine my proposal, but I'm held hostage to the empirics on. Um, and that's something that I want to explore going forward. The other thing is that, you know, just in a very basic sense, um, is this totally crazy? I want somebody to tell me that it is and why so that I can appreciate that because it strikes me as something that is surprisingly robust under scrutiny for an idea that just really has not been taken seriously at all in the literature. Um, I hope that this will spark a conversation. I'm looking forward to participating in that conversation. And that's one of the reasons that I just threw this out there, even before I was confident that you know, there would be a sufficient interest to place it anywhere.
0: Awesome. Well, Evan, as always, thanks for coming on the show. I thought it was a really great and provocative paper, and I found it quite convincing indeed. So um,
1: best of luck Thanks, Brian. It's been a real pleasure. I enjoy talking with you always, and glad to be here.